One year, I kind of got an idea. You almost try trap. I like to trap. I like to make lure, and I like to write. Where can it go from here? I would be able to spend more time in the woods. I was losing money hand over fish trapping, but I didn't care. Getting the traps out there is the hardest part, I think, with them. I would leave the critters in the back of my truck in the high school parking lot. We're going to set traps, like, no matter what. Some of these guys have trapped these areas for generations. We got to the furball. This is Northern Michigan. This is what you do. Representing trappers in a positive light. I'm going to ask you guys a question. Do you know everything? This will be fun. Trying to learn something from these legends. Ask questions without asking questions. Volumes of Perfect and Game magazine. There's structure from Perigo Gorman. Perg Lennon's articles, the Perg Lennon's ads. Information, trapping radios. We are trappers on ourselves. To me, that's pretty important. All right, everybody listening to me? Develop a system yet because work it ahead of time to build big traffic. If you got very much the same as the you got bogged down. They started talking about these big fans. Most of my tunes are coming from up top, not down top. Probably the best part of the country in the world. I don't know, get them better. Trying to set predator traps and trash waders. The back of that beaver looks like it gets sheared. You better edit this part out. Yeah, it was better. Back in the fur shed, this is the Trapping Today podcast. I am your host, Jeremiah Wood. Great to be here. Thank you guys for tuning in. The podcast is presented by Cots Brothers Lures, K-A-A-T-Z, B-R-O-S dot com. Trap smarter, work harder, enjoy the success that follows. Cots Brothers have a great selection, great prices, excellent service. Go to Cots Brothers for your trapping supply needs. We're also brought to you by Onyx Maps. Turn your phone into a fully functioning GPS. You can download this app on your phone and you have access to aerial imagery, landowner information, you can mark waypoints, you can track where you go. It is just an incredible resource. Go to onyxmaps.com and use the promo code TRAP, T-R-A-P, for 20% off. Great discount. Get going on that. I'd love to hear from you at jrodwood at gmail.com. Let me know if you uh, have gone ahead and purchased that Onyx Maps. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think of it. All right, tonight's episode, we are going to talk about the fur market with Kyle Kotz. I am excited about this. Had a great conversation with Kyle and a lot of things going on. Uh, one of the things I keep bringing up is uncertainty in the fur market. So we're going to dive into that uncertainty and try to figure out if we can create some semblance of an understanding of what's going on. One, uh, oh, a couple of things. Uh, we had the giveaway last week, uh, the Kellen Cotts Black Book of Coyote Trapping and the Flat Set Fix DVD. I did uh, draw a winner, and I'm going to announce that at the end of the episode. And I also am going to announce a special discount code from Cotts Brothers that you can use to save some uh, big money on your next purchase at CotsBros.com. Just a little hint, it involves a TS-85 beaver trap. So stay tuned to the end of the episode for that. Um I had a listener, Kevin from North Carolina, great guy. We've emailed back and forth in the past, and uh, we've talked a little bit about the fur market and trying to understand what the future of the fur market is going to look like. You know, we've got the the big Canada goose news that Kyle and I are going to talk about in tonight's episode. Um, and Kevin, he he's kind of an analytical guy, and and he's he's really into this stuff. So he put together an analysis. He went back through. The average price for coyote uh, pelts in uh, fur harvesters auctions dating back uh, 
quite a few years and average price and clearances and kind of graphed that, um, put that together in a chart looking at the price trends over time. And he uh, he, he also overlaid the, uh, the onset of this whole Canada Goose Expedition Parka a fashion trend that's taken place uh, for the past several years and tried to show, uh, give us, a, you know, it's not, not perfect, but just a general idea of the impact that Canada Goose has had on the fur market overall. And so I posted that up on trappingtoday.com. You can check that out and just look at those graphs and see what we're talking about there. And a little bit of analysis from Kevin. He figured, you know, maybe 25, 30% of the coyote market or, or the increase in coyote prices is is attributable to that Canada Goose uh, purchasing uh, in that, that overall fashion trend. So um, the coyote market is not going away, but it's it's greatly reduced. And I also emailed with Garrett Volk from Volk Furs in North Dakota. Uh, we talked a little bit uh, about about the impact, and, and I'm going to try to get him on if I can ever get a chance to sit down. Uh, for for an hour at a time and and uh, set up a time with him to talk more about that. But Garrett has bought for Canada Goose for for years. Uh, he's bought Western Heavy Coyotes and uh, he said it's not looking good either. So um, just a j- just provides a little bit of a, a window into what's going on. Um, I I got a huge surprise today. Uh, my wife went down to the mailbox and came up with this box. And my friend Josh from Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, old college buddy. Um, met up with him when I when I went and did my my Alaska trapping trip in February, and I stayed with Josh when I got back to Fairbanks, and before I got on the plane to head back to Maine, uh, had a lot of fun catching up with him, and and he's he's been trapping quite a bit the past few years, and he's started to um, do a little bit, you know, making a few uh, hats and and mitts and stuff, and just getting into the fur utilization. Um, he, he's been learning from an old native woman up there, um, and in one of the villages, uh, and, learning how to sew and, and, uh, and just kind of experimenting with things. And, you know, we talked back and forth and said, Hey, I'll make you, I'll make you a hat. You want me, you want a hat? And, uh, of course I've always wanted a fur hat. I've talked about it forever and I've just never done it and never wanted to spend the money to, to send furs out and get a hat made. And he said, send me some furs. I'll make you a hat. Uh, okay. So I sent him some a couple of Fisher and some Martin that I that I had that I tanned and uh, I had laying around and and I thought oh, what the heck uh, maybe he can experiment with this and if he comes up with something great if he doesn't he doesn't well I just got this in the mail and it is the most beautiful hat that I've ever worn this thing is awesome so he made uh, the Fisher it, it's like a it's kind of like your your typical Mad Bomber hat um, it's got sort of the ear flaps that come down on the sides in in the back and and that portion is is fisher and then uh on the front of the hat is like right from the forehead all the way back to the center top of the hat is martin martin pelt with a martin tail hanging over the top it is just beautiful man it is awesome he sewed this all by hand incredible so i'm, I'm really pumped and then Something completely unexpected is he also included in the box a set of beaver gauntlet mitts that he uh, 
uh, sewed up as well. And uh, I, I really did not expect these. These are just amazing. Um, and they fit just right. They're going to be awesome. I'm so excited about these. So uh, I was actually thinking of, of uh, talking to two or three people to get some some gauntlets made from my beaver pelts but here we go josh josh has sent me a pair of them so so that's great actually i may may try to see if josh is interested in coming on the podcast to talk trapping as well that i think that'd be kind of cool but i'm going to give him a call after i get done with this episode and catch up with him uh, uh but but it just kind of sealed the deal on on you know wearing fur you know wearing wearing your own fur and and uh it's i i can't believe it you know i've been trapping for f- over 15 years and i'm this is the first fur hat and and mitts that I'm going to be actually wearing this legit fur from the trap line. So it, it it's something that we all should be thinking about doing and we should be doing. I I'm I'm so pumped about wearing this out on the in the winter time out trapping and out ice fishing and just uh just around and showing it off to people and maybe getting more people interested in fur. And uh, one of the things that Kevin mentions in in his email and we've talked about a lot and Kyle and I talk about it a little bit in this episode as well as you know there is going to be some utility fur market that's uh, just people you know wearing uh, small DIY projects and mitts and hats and just sort of local sustainable use of of raw fur and and that's going to have to play a part in this market I think because if things continue as they are in the global fur market and the fashion industry and all that we're we're not going to have a a good outlet to sell all the fur that's produced in North America. So it's something to consider and, and to think about. Uh, check out that post by Kevin. And I also talk about Cole, my friend, that uh, in this episode, he's, he's, you know, making some some koozies, some drink koozies with beaver fur that look really cool. You know, muskrat, martin, th- those would, you know, those make some really good koozies. Things like that, uh, that, that maybe we wouldn't otherwise think of. Maybe getting some of your beaver pelts tanned and hooping them, making some decorative thing to sell at craft fairs and stuff. Um, just a, There's a lot of different ways that we need to start getting creative as trappers uh, in, in marketing our fur uh, because it may take a little more time before this all this whole fur market comes back. And, and when it does, who knows what's going to be in demand. There are certain fur items that are still going to be hard to sell and, and others that'll that it'll have some good clearance and good prices we just don't know for sure but i would encourage anybody to try and uh, start experimenting with making things uh, with with fur pelts from animals that you trapped and and uh, get into that a little bit just if not if for nothing else just to diversify um, and and help create another market in other news i am putting the finishing touches on the walter arnold book going through the last round of editing and and it'll be ready for proofreading pretty soon. Doing a little bit more formatting, and uh, we're, we're gonna be. It's gonna be in the works. So, get three or four inches. It's the 9th of May. And got three or four inches of snow on the ground. It's snowing right now. So uh, this stuff won't last. But it was a great excuse to get back inside and work on this project and try to get it wrapped up before summer. Uh, so stay tuned on that. I'm going to be going crazy plugging that book and trying to sell as many copies as possible. I put a lot of work into it. I think it's going to be a great read for trappers, and I am going to all but beg you to purchase a copy of it to support me and this project and the podcast and everything else going on. 
So thanks so much, guys. And uh, let's get into the episode with Kyle Kotz on the fur market. All right, back by popular demand. Kyle Kotz, Kotz Brothers Lures. How are things going at the KBL compound? Oh, pretty good. I guess as, as good as can be. Uh, May 1st in Illinois, non-essential business was able to kind of resume. So uh, we're we're resuming, I guess. <laughs> we didn't really ever stop, but we're we're resuming. <laughs> well, if trapping is an essential, what is? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's it's so tough. I mean, we've we've had a lot of texts and, and emails back and forth, and and it's we're kind of in uncharted waters. And I, I, the two people I deal with on a day to day basis is I work out here with my brother Kellen. I go in the house, and I live with my wife. And their personalities and their views on people and judging things are very much aligned. And they, so those are the two people I kind of answer to, and I'm kind of in the middle, more or less. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Kellen has, has a lot of valid arguments uh, from more of a conspiracy theorist um, standpoint. And my wife is somewhat fearful of the what if with all this the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, Kellen's response is I'm going to keep living my life. Nobody can tell me what to do. And my wife is more so, well, just in case this is a really real thing, I'm going to take all the precautions and I'm kind of right in the middle. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's really hard. I've never lived my life in fear, so I'm not going to be afraid, so to speak. But I also generally, I, I, I don't always trust government. I don't trust the numbers, so to speak. Um, so there is that kind of cautious, like, what's to come. And, and we look up at Wall Street, and and the reaction was pretty swift when we look back to the later part of March when states started shutting down. Um, and even in our own industry, um, you know, we look at Grenwald or kind of, the first ones that canceled their routes. And so, you know, six weeks ago, I was kind of nervous. Like I told my wife, like, I got a lot of bullets. We live in a place that, you know, <laughs> I can shoot a deer if I have to. Like, I, I was like, I don't I wasn't really afraid, but I was kind of taking the pro- more of a, a doomsday proper approach. <laughs> like, is this what we got to do? And, uh, and, and it's turned out that it, it hasn't been that at all. So from that, from that perspective, I guess I feel a little bit comfortable, but also uh, pretty real, uh, trying to take a real realistic approach to where we're at and, and what's going to come um, this this fall in the in the fur market, because that's the market that ultimately affects us the most. So, Yeah, and they're probably the one word that I would use to describe the fur market right now is uncertainty. Oh, yeah. It just seems like yeah. everything is all over the place and one minute to the next, you know, we, like you said, Grunwald shut down, uh, fur harvesters had to cancel their in-person auction. They did, you know, they did the, uh, the online sale, uh, but really from day to day, you know, they're talking about uh, doing an auction this fall, but that could change. Uh, just everything is a moving target, it seems. And uh, one of the things that you have told us in the past is it's not what you know, it's who you know. And so uh, yeah. I know you ha- you have uh, contacts in the fur industry and you've talked with, with people. So 
what can you share with us from from your standpoint on what we're looking at here? Well, I guess the the first thing I I always you know we try to when we're dealing with a challenge we try to look for uh, something that we have experience with maybe another challenge that we've gone through and how did markets react then compared to now. And I think we're kind of in unprecedented times because when we look back to 2008 um, and we had a bit of a, a recession, um, the financial crisis, so to speak, and that had an effect on firm markets. But that was different because 2008 was primarily a U.S. issue. Um, and on the backside of our dollar weakening, it allowed especially Russia to get more bang for their buck. Um, with the ruble to the dollar, and the fur markets reacted positively in the years to follow 2008. Now, this is a global issue. Uh, right before you called, I looked it up, and the ruble was 75.50 to the dollar. Wow, um, which is out of control. Like it, it's so. So that means, um, you know, if if a if a Russian manufacturer paid a dollar for a coonskin it's costing them 75.50 now we need that one dollar coon to be costing them about forty dollars for them to actually um get get value in that conversion and i think that is an indicator i look to um so we're in uncharted waters for sure in the grand scheme of things, the fur market has survived the bubonic plague. It survived the Spanish flu. The fur market has survived pandemics and epidemics through the course of its history. However, I don't know that we can always compare things that happened hundreds of years ago to today. I mean, we're talking about in some in, in some instances, you know, the fur market is so much older than technology or airplanes or global trade that it's hard to look that far back and say the market's going to react the same now because the factors that affect it have changed so much. Um, so in talking to different people, I, I come back to it's very uncertain, and I, I think you nailed that 100%. It's totally uncertain. Um, what, we, what we do know is there's fur available, and there are people willing to buy it. Um, so that's positive. But what that process looks like over the next few weeks, a uh, few months, is really a challenge. And I think it, it's, it's, there's two parts to it, because a lot of the fur is sold through auctions, through Fur Harvester, Saga, and Copenhagen. And the auctions are selling at a predetermined time they're having an auction. Whereas you have companies like Grenwald's brokers, some of the other bigger country buyers that are selling fur every single day because they have an inventory of fur. So I think it's really, t it's kind of tough because, you know, it, this pandemic has changed so much the way business is conducted that it's really hard to get a grasp on where the markets probably are um, because naturally you know some buyers if they really really needed the fur and the auction is is postponed or they can't buy it at the auction then they may go to 
uh, someplace they can buy it right right away. And then all at once you have the auctions maybe hurting, whereas the country buyers may be saying, hey, we're actually moving far again, or vice versa. So it's it's hard to really put all the information together and formulate an opinion as to you know what's going to transpire the next few weeks. Um, one thing that that is kind of interesting, I, I read uh, an email that was from the IFF, the International Fur Trade Federation. And um, in that email, it talked about that as things have reopened in China after COVID-19, that revenge spending is a real thing. After people have been basically isolated in their homes and now they can go out again, they're going to spend money. <laughs> they're they're going to try to move move ahead. Is and, this kind of like what, and, what people are calling pent-up demand? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the reports are that the revenge spending is a real thing, and there's also revenge spending is more prevalent towards some of the luxury items because naturally people that are 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 living at a standard that, that they can afford luxury things, they probably retained their wealth more or less through this uh, economic downturn. So now when they're allowed to go out, yeah, they're going to go ahead and make those luxurious purchases that, that they had been thinking about before. So a short term, that is probably a bump that will help the, the, uh, the firm works a little, but I don't know that it's a real, it, it's, it doesn't really help with the uncertainty, in my opinion. Um, so it's it's uh, it's tough to get a handle on, but there there are some things that are positive. I think um, you know that being one of them that that you know people are still going to be interested in fur, wearing fur, buying fur, and naturally um, the manufacturers that are in the fur business are going to resume the fur business, but. You know, it so much hinges on the consumer, and you know where where is the global economy really going to be past the COVID nineteen thing? Nobody really knows. And I listen to a lot of a lot of YouTube videos where, like Mark Cuban and and other people are talking about America two where you know things are going to be different after this. And I I don't know. I, I try not to get wrapped up too much in that. But it's hard to 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 believe that we're going when the COVID nineteen thing passes. It's hard to believe that the global economy is just going to say, "Oh, okay, it's all good now," and go back to where we were exactly yeah. where we were before. Yeah. So who knows? There's there's a, there's going to be a recovery process, and you know, I I think. I think fur is a very resilient commodity that's going to endure that process, but it's going to probably take a while. Do you think that uh, the fur market today is more influenced by luxury or utility or, um, or either, or. Hmm. That's a real good question. And well, that may be talk to bring us into a, a subject of something that we've texted about. And you were the first one to, text me and tell me about Canada Goose and them coming out with their press release about they're not going to use virgin coyote fur anymore, meaning they're not, they're only going to use reclaimed coyote fur on their coats starting in 2022, correct? Yeah, I think that was a shock to everybody. Yeah. Now, so when we look at Canada Goose, you know, as far as a luxury versus utility, Canada Goose's coats were priced at a level that 
most people could afford. And they're hugely fashionable. They're neat, nice-looking coat uh, with coyote fur trim on them. Uh, a lot of the, you know, the uh, SVU and the TV shows my wife and I watch, she'll always point out, like, hey, that's a nice coat. And it's like, sure enough, you see the Canada Goose logo on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so the, those coats are, are, I think, something that people can afford. And they're not like a full-length fin raccoon or full-length coyote that is, uh, you know, ma- mostly worn by Snoop Dogg and Joe Namath that costs twenty thousand dollars and uses you know, a lot more a, fur. <laughs> yeah, and uses a lot more fur. So I think I think that trimming that kind of coat definitely was driving the market, and it was more towards the utility side, even though it was definitely a fashion play, I think it was closer to being more of a utility item than a luxury item, just by by its price point. Now, after you had texted me about uh, the Canada Goose deal, I right away looked at it, and, and then through the course of that day, I had about five other people send emails or, and, and say, hey, have you seen this? And um, I, after you texted me that and I read my first, right away I texted Guy Grunwald and I said, is this having an immediate impact on the coyote market? And he responded, no. I haven't talked to Guy to really get more information as to what he's feeling, but my initial, my initial thought is, okay, they're saying 2022. So in the next couple of years, that means, regardless, they're kind of caving to the animal rights groups which if we kind of set our own trapping beliefs aside, you know, Canada Goose has to make the decisions that are best for their business. And they're a publicly and, traded company, so stockholders. And they're a publicly have, traded company yeah. with a $2.48 billion market cap, which I'll come back to that figure. So they're a huge company. Um, and they have to explain things to their investors. So by them making this statement, they have essentially two years of load up buying coyote skins <laughs> to load up. Yep. So do we see a short-term jump in coyote prices? We very well could. Um, or at least we're going to see clearances maintained steady because who who's going to be there to, to compete against Canada Goose is a real good question. Um, but there's also the question of this coyote trim coat that has kind of taken fashion by storm and has driven the coyote market the past few years you know is that fashion driving the market or was canada goose the company that pushed that fashion you know i don't know the answer to that question but but um if it's fashion driving it and canada goose says we're not going to do that anymore that you're going to canada goose is going to going to lose some profits and probably have to change uh, go back on their their idea of using only reclaimed coyote fur which isn't something I did have an email back um, from somebody that said, you know, Canada Goose's brand identity is using coyote fur. And if they stop using coyote fur, they're just another coat, essentially. Hmm. So that's a good point that we have to look at. Now, my big question is this. Okay, we got a company that has a $2.48 billion market cap that is using coyote skins, driving the market to get them basically the past few years, which is a sign that they, the production of coyote skins as it sits now is not enough to cover what they need because the price has continually gone up on them. 
so now we we got to look at that demand, that supply that they require to produce their coats. And they're going to say, no, we're not going to use very urgent coyote fur. We're going to re- use reclaimed coyote fur. What is there, two coyote coats in the world that they could reclaim? <laughs> like, where are they going to come up with reclaimed coyote fur to service a $2.48 billion market cap? Yeah. It's not possible. A couple of it's, thoughts it's, are, are maybe, number one, maybe they see this beginning to decline and they're trying to get out ahead of time. Or two, maybe they have years worth of coyote uh, roughs in storage that they need to clean up. Yeah, that's possible. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, it's a... Because it's while it, it just doesn't make sense. Otherwise, other than that, it does not make sense that they would shoot themselves in the foot by mm-hmm. going this route when they've been so successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I, I just forwarded you uh, an email from a podcast listener that that did a little analysis. He went back through, uh, it's Kevin from North Carolina. He went back through a bunch of the fur auction results and the, the Western heavy coyote prices over the years and kind of mm-hmm. looked at when Canada goose entered, kind of entered the market and started mm-hmm. buying these in large quantities and it showed the bump. And I, I think he, he figured, you know, just really rough calculations, maybe a 30 to 40% bump in the coyote market as a result of that, uh, that impact from Canada goose. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm just throwing through that email. He obviously has got, I guess kind of, I'm bullish on fur, though I admit there's going to be a lot of short-term pain. Yeah, that sums up exactly <laughs> what my feelings are. And this, this, this guy's obviously really got a good handle. He, he, we should talk to him about day trading. I think if he can, <laughs> a chart like this. <laughs> well, I, I already uh, yeah, know. I, I can already provide some good advice on day trading. Number one. Um, don't speculate on oil. Number two, <laughs> don't speculate on oil. And number three, if you speculated on oil and it's gone down 50%, don't double down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Um, you little, know, I mean, that's... little inside baseball for folks. Me and Kyle uh, have been doing a little <laughs> stock trading and, and sharing ideas back and forth. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and yeah. it's, it, it provides a lot of insight on the stock market provides a lot of insight on, the, I think, the fur market. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the one we're, we're kind of joking about here is, is USO, which is an ETF that basically uh, trades oil futures. And if we look at what's happened to that uh, fund over the past week, um, it got to a point where um, nobody was really looking at valuations. The fund is basically dying. So they come and make wholesale changes to how they're going to do business. Um, they do a eight for one reverse split and now they're actually going up because they bought, they basically sold off, rebought futures that are, are in the money. So all of a sudden they took a really bad gloom and doom situation and they realigned themselves to make money again. But in, in the, in the, the fund is actually going up. It's trading high up again today. I believe it's up a little bit yeah, it was today. Up a little bit, yeah. After, after, you know, everything is essentially a red day. The Dow is down. Everything's red across the board. And USO has gone up a little bit because 
people are overvaluing it and they're running to something. And we see the same thing in the fur market sometimes where people run to one item and they overlook the value of another item that's sitting there on the auction table or, or that is readily available. And that's just the nature of humanity. And it leads to a lot of uncertainty because ultimately sometimes we, you know, use our emotions instead of actually thinking about things. And then there's always the thought of, um, and I'm guilty of it too, like, oh my God, I got to hurry up and buy this because I'm going to miss out. Yes. You know what? Nothing really works that fast. Um, even though sometimes, you know, you look at things that are happening on Wall Street, look at a, at a, at a running chart of a stock as it's trading and it's jumping up and down like some wild roller coaster. But in reality, if you back out, instead of looking at things from a one day perspective, you back out that chart and look at something over 10 years or over the course of its existence and you start to see the actual trend. And I think that's kind of my take on the firm market too. Like right now it's very uncertain, but let's zoom way out and look at where we're really at. And yeah. it doesn't look near as bad. Right. It, it's kind of like uh, the advice that Warren Buffett gives. Basically, short term, the the market is a voting machine. Long term, the market is a weighing machine. And what that means is over the short term, uh, the stock market is determined. Prices are determined by people's vote on what's going up and what's going down, opinions and mostly emotion. But over the long term, the fundamentals of the business and the supply and demand aspects of it are what, what really determines the price uh, years out. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. So one of my other, my, one of my favorite Warren Buffett quotes is, is uh, uh, when everybody else is being caught, being fearful, be greedy, and when everybody else is being greedy, be fearful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so the... The, we we talked about the Canada Goose thing, and we're not really sure where that's going to go. Now, what about um, go, dropping one level below Canada Goose and going down to more strict utility fur? Um, are, are we in? You think we're in for some pain uh, until China and Russia fully recover? Uh, yeah, and uh, and I I think I think a lot of things essential in the fur market just. If you look at Wall Street and what happened the past six weeks, I think the fur market kind of did the same thing where, you know, raccoon prices just took a huge nosedive. Um, you know, you could, you could probably buy fur harvesters on their online side. I think they tried to help hold some, some levels. So, you know, the clearance is not real great because they tried to maintain some levels. Um, but if they had just, auctioned all the coon off, I think, and started at zero, we would have seen a lot of the coon sell for a dollar to $2, which at that price, the commissions isn't enough to cover for harvester's cost, basically. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they're not going to do that. However, at some point, um, you know, we're going to – we basically got to start at ground zero to get things moving and back in the manufacturer's hands. And I do think that that the utility part of you know fur is be is cheaper. Um, the fashion industry is hugely um, uh, innovative. So you know I you see fur now on slippers 
that cost 40 bucks. Um, so there's, I, I, I think there's a trend almost of marketing for as a utility because luxury is a small market compared to utility where it's affordable for everyone. Um, so, and, and, you know, the, 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 this is maybe going to come out wrong, but the fur manufacturers and the fashion designers, those people are way smarter at fur than we are as trappers. So, mm-hmm. so they, they're, I, 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 I do think that, that, um, you know, this may be, we need fur to be used as a utility to basically, um, help, uh, remove some of the uncertainty and bring back some stability as we recover past COVID-19. So I would, I would say I, 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 I hope that we see fur used more in, in items and garments that are not full length $20,000 coats, but slippers and earmuffs and things that the average person can afford to spend $20, $30, $40 on, because that would certainly help. Yep. Yeah, one of the things that I fear a little bit, and I, you know, I'm I'm more like you. I tend to be more optimistic even in tough times. Um, but you know, we look back in the past, and okay, the fur market has had, uh, you know, ups and downs, ups and downs. Uh, but it seems like, you know, we see a big downturn. We see it come back up, and every time it comes back up, it seems to top out at a bit of a lower level. Uh, it, and that's a little bit, that's a little bit concerning. Um, one of the things that that a, a country buyer mentioned to me this week was that you know think about all of the fur that was in the store shelf from this past season that wasn't sold because they weren't open, um, and that we still you know need to go through a, an entire winter uh, to clear a lot of those items. So how much fur are they really going to be looking for? Now put this in the backdrop of the entire fur industry has really contracted a lot. Uh, the the past several years, the amount of fur being produced is is low. I know on the wild fur side, you can probably provide some in, insight on the ranch fur side. But um, it, do you do you kind of share those views? Well, yeah, a hundred percent. And the thing we got to remember is, you know, fur harvesters really was taking a a what's best for everybody approach when they were going to have their March sale in conjunction with the NAFA stuff, because on, on the ranch fur side, you know, ranch fur is kind of, a, there's a lot of other problems with ranch fur versus wild fur right now, but there's still problems with wild fur. Um, the one thing though, that's, that is also a wild card is there's a lot of fur sitting there in NAFA's hands that needs to come out on the market. Yeah. That's something we, it's easy to forget about, but that still hasn't sold. Yeah. And so, so, and they they do have a private treaty sale up there, but so, you know, in a perfect world, if, if COVID-19 hadn't affected things, the fur market would look totally different, which is, it's kind of stupid to say that everybody's like, no, oh, yeah, you, you're an idiot, man. I, I can, I get that. <laughs> yeah. But, but we've been I, predicting I, I, that this had to bottom <laughs> out by 2020 for a couple of years now. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think COVID-19 maybe, you know, we were heading towards a reset 
yep. with what happened with NAFA, before that, what happened with the American legend with the ranch mink, which is a whole different story. But we were we were heading into very uncertain and not real stable times. Uh, and the ranch mink is a big part of that. And then COVID-19 just kind of eliminated all that and pushed a reset button because everything basically went to zero then. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we're still dealing with what happens with the Napa stuff because there's not a huge amount of wild fur there, but there is a lot of wild fur that has to come out on the market. And who knows what's going to happen with that? At some point, is the court going to say, okay, now's the time. Everything needs to be liquid. We're wrapping this up now. At which case, they do then have an auction or an online auction or a private treaty sale where basically it's a no bottom. We start everything at zero. So um, if you want to buy the wild red fox that have been there, you can start the bidding at 10 cents. You know, if that happens, we're going to see a big rush there and people speculating. I mean, I would try to buy some stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But I I guess that's more theoretically speaking. I wouldn't go there. (laughs) But but, uh, um, if if that happens, it's probably something that needs to happen. That fur needs to get out of there so that the Napa saga can finally be closed out, put behind us. Um, And then once we get that, that, I think that helps the recovery process a little bit because then everything is more on a controlled environment because there is a existing, that stuff is sitting there. Um, you know, fur harvesters, Grenwalds, any of these people that, that are major players, they're talking to their buyers all the time. There's a relationship there. You know, they can get a handle on what's coming and make the decisions needed to, to maintain profitability and, and, and the business relationships that they need to, to work through um, the recovery process. Whereas when you have NAFA sitting there um, and basically trying to liquidate and you're closing out a company, that's a real uncertainty because we don't know what the timeline is. It's basically, it's just inventory at this point. There's no marketing, there's no business around it, just sitting there. So hopefully that stuff can get moved out um, they do have a private treaty sale listed on their on their website, which I don't know the timeline for that. But you know, I, I let me just pull that up quick here um, on their website and see if they say when their online sale is ending. Um, yeah, they have the the. You can view all available goods uh, in order to make private treaty inquiries and offers, but that doesn't tell me. I don't know if they're if they're trying to maintain some valuations or where they're really at with their with their uh, private treaty. Yeah, it looks sale. like they have three three separate catalogs started March twenty fourth and twenty fifth. Huh. Mm-hmm. But I, I would assume not much of that is cleared. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Probably not. So I've got. I want to go in a couple different directions, um, and I'm going to try not to take us too far afield. But I want to explore a couple of things. And since we're on NAFA, maybe we'll start with this one. Uh, overall, fur promotion. Uh, we we don't like you said. There's a lot of uncertainty sometimes whether there are fashion trends that are kind of out of our control and kind of drive the market. 
um, versus how much a company or a fur auction house or fur industry uh, can help start fashion trends or encourage the use of certain items and promote their use and how the impacts that that might have on the fur market. Um, so, so let's kind of, let's dive into that a little bit on, on what you think about the importance of the people on the selling side uh, to, to actually do the, some of the promotion. Yeah. I don't know. I've always, I've, I've been critical and of, of NAFA um, in the past. And, and one of the things that I think kind of led to their demise is they blew a lot of money in a lot of different areas. Um, but one of the things that they spent a lot of money on was marketing. And I, I'd be the first, I, I know some people would criticize me for saying this, but, but I don't believe that NAFA was really in a position to get the most out of their marketing dollars. Um, because ultimately they're an auction house selling first in. The fashion, when I, I just had an email today, there's May 6th and 7th, there's a new fashion talk taking place led by Vogue. Um, so just let's, I won't even read the rest of the email. Vogue to me, uh, and then you have, I'm trying to, there's so many of these fashion designers that I never heard of but i was trying to look for one that everybody would know i don't see any listed here but let's take vogue when you have these fashion empires they're masterful at marketing and do does a uh a fashion company or or a huge manufacturer that basically has billions of dollars that they can put into marketing their product do they really need any help from NAFA, for example, like it, I, I question that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying that that you know, as trappers, as organizations, we shouldn't try to promote fur. But I think sometimes we're better off if we take our money and make sure we we beat legislation and and uh, more or less uh, promote our heritage as trappers. And let the fashion people promote fur because they know the fur product better than we do. I it, that's my take, and, and I, I would maybe be criticized for that a little bit. But I I, I think that's you know um, you know if if we want to market to you know if, if an auction house is trying to get buyers to come to their sale, that kind of marketing is positive. That's that's. Sure. You know, you need to spend some money on customer acquisition, in this case, getting fur buyers to your sale. But trying to spend money to influence fashion, you know, I don't think, I I think that was one of NAFA's downfalls, as they were trying to spend money in an arena that was way above the amount of money that they really had to put into it. And so naturally, it kind of fell on deaf ears because other people are doing it better than they were. Um, so that's where I, it's, it's kind of, kind of a, a tough question, but, and, and I think, I, I hope I conveyed that so people, listeners don't think I'm totally ridiculous, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it, it makes sense to me. I mean, I can understand promoting in terms of showing people what you have available and what wild fur 
um, looks like and and giving allowing them helping them come up with options based on what we have uh, but beyond that I, I I know I certainly would be over my head in terms of of what things can be used for and how to start a trend start a fashion trend mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah exactly yep I, I've thought about this more this winter than than any other time and I I'm not coming up with any good answers. I've brought it up on the podcast a couple of times and, and perhaps I'm not coming up with any good answers because we don't have good answers. How do we as trappers uh, try to take over uh, the reins of, of trying to promote the use of the fur that we, that we produce? And, uh, you know, broadly, we probably don't. I mean, there are small things we can do, like number one, wearing more of the fur that, that we produce. Uh, showing people, you know, that that fur is something that's very useful, durable, um, and and part of our everyday life. But beyond that, yeah. in terms of of trying to to start a trend, uh, I don't know that anybody can can actually uh, can actually do that. Yeah, well, it, and it's it's one of them things. It's it's as a trapper, I, I think we need to put ourselves uh, promote our promote trapping more so than promote fur. Um, so that when votes come up and, and, and legislative issues happen, that the general public can say, oh, yeah, that Jeremiah buys gas here. He's a trapper. He's a nice guy. Trappers are probably all nice guys. We need to convey that right. image. And and I, and I think that that is more important than, you know, it's just like our my my local gas station here in town or is, is a BP franchise. And I go there and get gas, you know, they're promoting that they want to sell gas, but they're not trying to uh, influence the oil industry. (laughs) And and I think that that's, that's something we probably have to look at too, that, that, you know, if the best way we could promote wild fur is probably to wear it. So, I mean, if we have a, especially now with the coon market the way it is, if you have a coonskin hat made or something like that and wear it in public, that's about the best thing you could do, I think. Yeah. Um, as far as trying to spend big bucks and uh, from an organizational level, you know, I, I think that'd be detrimental if if you have the NTA or fur harvest or fur takers or or state organizations trying to promote fur is is kind of you know I, I think that money's better spent uh, being proactive on the legislative front. Yeah, uh, one thing that comes to mind. So uh, uh, my friend Cole up here in Northern Maine catches a few beavers. Sends them out, gets them tanned, and he's sewing up uh, can koozies, right, with with patches of beaver beaver fur. Selling a few of them uh-huh. here and there. Let's say he puts that up online and starts selling some, and all of a sudden a company decides, oh, this is a good idea. We're going to invest in this, and they start selling them, you know, and growing that. And all of a sudden, this big fashion trend. You know, this is just a, a small example, but it could happen in any use of fur anywhere. Um, and all of a sudden, this thing just explodes. Um, it's not really something that the uh, you know fur harvesters is going to start, or or NAFA, or a trappers association. Uh, it, maybe it it just happens, and there's things that we can do that may result in in something uh, to promote the use of fur, but but it, maybe it's a little less controllable than we think. Yeah, uh, I think that's you know going back to if if he can make something on a local level and sell it. If, if we, if we look back through the course of time, like in the 
early 80s, for example, when you had like that crazy fur boom, there was a lot of fur that never left the U.S. and was used here. And now most of the fur leaves gets made in China or, or, or manufactured somewhere else and then comes back. And I think also if you look back through the course of time, there was a lot of, of U.S. furriers that bought fur here, made things, and sold it all themselves. Mm-hmm. So some of that, um, you know, if we got back to that small enterprise and there was more of that, I think that would really help us. Um, long term, you know, that, and that's, you know, it's, it's tough because you're kind of competing in a global field, but also when you have outlets like social media, eBay, Amazon, anybody can start a small business pretty easily. And especially if it's something you're catching yourself, you're tanning yourself and not a lot invested to make something out of it. Yeah. I think that could be really, um, that could be really influential in our fur markets in a more of a long-term perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's go from the, the koozies to the entire, the, the opposite, complete opposite end of the spectrum of the fur market. I remember back when Parker Dozier was doing fur market reports, uh, I believe in the trapper and predator collar magazine. And there were some, tough times back then in the fur market and he was always you know so so one of the common things that you hear nowadays is trappers you need to produce less fur Uh, prices are down there's no demand you got to produce less fur Um, only trap fur when it's uh, the most prime and don't produce as much stop trapping fur that's not as valuable parker kind of took an opposite approach to to that a lot and, and he actually believed that there was sort of a critical mass where we were not producing anywhere near the fur that we produced back in, you know, the 50s and the 60s, even even the 80s and 90s. And it, it seems that you could get to a point where you the supply is so low that there is a smaller chance for a big company to... Take a, take a shot at some fashion item or producing some particular fur item because they don't have a reliable, dependable supply. I think that's a, exactly it. Um, that, that really does come into play. Um, and people always, I always hear people say, oh, it's supply and demand. No, supply and demand is stupid sometimes. That's, <laughs> that, that's not always how things work. Um, and, and going exactly what Parker's saying, um, if we look back, 1987, there was a big fur market crash, big stock market crash. So let's take, uh, in the early 80s, I can't give you an exact year, but, but let's look at, at Ranch Fox as an example, as an indicator. Um, in the early 80s, in the U.S., there was, at times, 500,000 Ranch Fox produced. And... They had auctions at Hudson Bay, that was kind of pre-NAFA, where they sold 100% of those fox, okay? After 87, it it declined sharply. It really fell off. Um, Last year in the U.S., we're talking three to 4,000 ranch fox skins produced. Wow. And the price 
of those ranch flocks, if you look at what the last spur harvester sale was, they're they're really low. So, oh, supply and demand. If if it was strictly supply and demand, and over a 40-year period, we went to 500,000 to 3,000 of something, uh, them ranch flocks should be worth like $30,000 each (laughs) if we're only looking at supply and demand. So I kind of like to think supply and demand, the rules of supply and demand go out the window at this point um, because there's more important factors. Um, Look at muskrat production, for example. Um, The I would I would guess going from 2018 to the 2019 season, the overall muskrat catch in this country is going to be off by 80% probably. I, I could be wrong, but let's just speculate it's off by 80%. Yeah, we don't really have a way of knowing. Yeah, we don't really have a way, but it's just a number I feel is talking to my people and looking at what's showing up in numbers. If, if we went from 100,000 muskrats down to 20,000 muskrats, what should happen to the price? It should really take off if it's supply and demand. That has not happened. And this was something that wasn't happening before COVID-19. So, yeah, supply and demand is not always the thing because if you have a big manufacturer that says, well, I can come up with this muskrat line coat and my distribution channels, I know I can sell a million of these coats, which means I need uh, 60 million muskrats to produce all of them. And he looks at the numbers and, oh, there was 200,000 produced. And you got to bet bet against somebody else to make sure you get, you may not get half of those. Yeah, (laughs) and and those numbers I'm throwing out there are just total random numbers for, for the purpose of the story but but yeah i mean so so at that point they're going to look at it and say well this is i I can't make this this isn't even worth it so then in the past the one item that could be produced at huge numbers that those type of manufacturers would would were driven to excuse me were the ranch mink because with the ranch mink you could go and buy a million skins of a certain color with a certain nap when you got the million skins they were all identical it wasn't like a raccoon where if you catch a hundred raccoons for you for the trapper they say oh my coon look the same they're just raccoons well no they don't to the manufacturer if you just took a random collection of a hundred illinois coons and gave them all to a uh, manufacturer in China, they would probably break, separate them by size. So out of a hundred, then you'd have probably, you know, let's say four different sizes being generous. There's probably more. Um, And then out of those four different sizes, you're going to break each one of them sizes down by color and by uh, whether they're heavy or semi-heavy. So now all at once you might have a hundred coon, but they're, you know, they, they took a hundred raccoon skins, but they've actually got 15 different items there to work with, which doesn't help a manufacturer, really. Um, so they're always driven to the ranch mink, and now what's happened with the ranch mink? Production, has, uh, the cost to produce has, is is more than what it costs to, to, uh, to or, I'm sorry, the cost to produce a ranch mink is higher than the value of the, of the skin. 
and like a like a, a friend of mine that is a mink rancher his quote he text about four weeks ago he said everybody's rushing to buy toilet paper he said i'm not worried i'll just use mink skins <laughs> <laughs> and so, so, you know that's kind of kind of where we're at <laughs> yeah and so the mink um, the, the ranch mink uh we know the industry has contracted a lot um, in the last several years as a result of lower prices. Can you give us an update on on where that's at? Uh, be, you know, for, between uh, the time we last talked and today. Mm. Uh, I would say, you know, there's the ranch mink business is 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 really it was a bad situation um, that's gotten worse, um, and. Now that could could improve, but it's it's really a challenge when comparing wild fur to ranch fur. The main difference is with wild fur. If if we're producing raccoon skins, we're not trying to feed our family. I would say most trappers now are trapping because they like to trap. Whatever fur they can sell is great. Uh, they pay for their hobby maybe buy Christmas presents, you know, it gives you a little extra spending cash, but wild fur, I, I can't think of anybody that is solely making their living selling wild fur as a trapper. It's just not possible in today's economic environment. With ranch fur, you have farms. It's no different than somebody that raises beef or hogs or poultry. You know, there's a cost to produce those skins. There's a, a cost to feed the mink and when you look back mink ranchers made mad money from 2013 to 15 let's mm-hmm. say in that range um in 16 things were were starting to decline but there was mixed feelings some people thought oh this is just a little bump in the road it's going to come back i.e nafa who was out of business because they thought oh it'll come back and kept borrowing money yeah uh, not to criticize anybody but that is a misread that a lot of people made but ultimately the the people that i guess i kind of value their opinions the most they were all saying no it's headed down you know the the market is going down it was probably overvalued um when it was high so now it's going to recorrect and then go down. <laughs> so <laughs> you have like the this stock market and the housing market. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, so that is, it's, it's, it's really a tough scenario. Um, ranch mink production is, is definitely fallen off. You know, how much is it going to fall off? I'm, I'm not in tune with it as well as some people on a global scale, but um, there was also, so as things started to fall, if we look, back like in that range of 2016 i know there were some some mink ranchers especially in europe said well mink were a hundred dollars now they're fifty dollars i'll just raise twice as many mink (laughs) i have the same amount of money at the end well when you're having a uh a, a price correction and then a decline that doesn't work it just makes the problem that much the last thing you want to do is produce more supply yeah exactly and then again we're going we're kind of deviating from this demand or from the principles of supply and demand to start with and so now we've got this supply where it's not about the demand it's 
is there even a market for it? Right, exactly. Um, and so now... And then you go to speculators. The then the only person they'll buy is a speculator. <laughs> exactly. So I, I think that's, you know, the history, looking at the short-term history of the ranch mink thing, um, and that affects everything. Like I've, I've always said, ranch mink is like the Dow Jones of the fur market. Um, now, naturally, there's things like the coyote market that have totally done their own thing, no different than when you look at the Dow Jones, there's companies that have, like Tesla, for example, that's done its own thing in light of what the numbers really are saying. Mm -hmm. um, so there's always there's always things that deviate from that. But generally speaking, when ranch mink is is very pot, when the market is very positive, wild fur is very positive overall. When the ranch mink slumps, so does wild fur. But now, you know, that was that was where we were like last time we talked about it now i don't think anything's changed other than this great uncertain instead of calling it the great depression 2.0 or great recession again or whatever these people want to say it i would say it's the great uncertainty because we sure. don't know what is going to happen on the other side of the covid 19 thing and it's affected all the countries in the fur business so yeah who i kind of feel like who knows? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's very, um, it's, it's, it's very tough. I mean, the, the mink ranchers I know are very nervous because a, a lot of, a lot of mink ranchers did pelt out as things started to decline in 2017 on a global scale. We saw production come down and it has continually come down. And now the ones that have held, held on and tried to, cut feed costs, make wholesale changes to their business are probably being faced with, you know what, we've used up all the capital we made five, six years ago. Where do we go from here? And these would be the low cost producers. Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah, it's, it's really tough. And, and, you know, on a global scale, I would say that, that feed costs, um, in the, in North America, are probably more favorable to the mink rancher than in Europe. Um, one time, so, and, and, and then we always go back to China. We don't really know what's being produced in China. No, um, they won't share one those time, numbers with us. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and that, I mean, the same with the COVID-19. We don't know exactly how bad it was there um, because, you know, the 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 number numbers are it was great. more than 3000 people numbers. dead i think we can be uh, safe in saying yeah that. yeah um numbers are great to analyze but when we have to whenever you try to analyze the numbers and, and make sense of things it's really hard to do if you don't know that the numbers are 100% accurate so, or even 10% so accurate that, yeah yeah so and that's the same thing that's kind of happened with the ranch mink because when things were really good, China, I mean, I know, I know U.S. mink ranchers that sold, made crazy deals to sell breeding stock to mm -hmm. Chinese ranchers. Um, so, you know, they had the capabilities based on just that. And who knows what they were buying from European farmers and then, you know, how much they were expanding through their own production. Um, you know, that it's, 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 there's, there's a lot of unknowns and I'm just not, in the loop enough to really speculate on on all those different factors that went into it and then like i say that all that existed before the big 
re- uncertain reset of COVID-19. Do you have any idea how they're, you probably, probably nobody knows, but how China's mink, ranch mink cost of production compares with ours? Well, somebody one time told me this, this is a great quote and it, and it is kind of interesting that in the U S humans eat what the animals won't in China, the animals eat what the people won't. It's kind of backwards. And what that means is, is in China, uh, what they use in agricultural feed is the leftovers. Whereas in the U S we actually produce tons of edibles with the intent of feeding our animals first. Okay. Yeah. So, so if you look at that, I don't know. I don't know what the cost of production in China was like compared to the U S I, it's a hard question to totally pinpoint because um, we don't know. I would think, I, I think American mink ranchers were very efficient with their feed. And, but, but when things were good, they were very efficient. They made money. But when things got bad, they could only cut it so much. Um, just with any kind of animal, you know, if you cut feed too much, you start to run into issues with their, with their reproduction, with their general health. Um, so you can't really cut the cost. You can only cut so much to where your production is going to suffer. Um, so, you know, I don't know, though, on the China side, it's unknown. I, I don't yeah. know what their, what their production was really It's safe like. to say it's declined. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm guessing yeah. that, you know, based on, you know, when you're feeding a good high quality consistent ration the quality of the product is going to be much better as well so um, yeah they're, they're probably struggling with that um, but the the big question that i have with the whole ranch side of the fur industry because we know it you know it it drives uh you know maybe the fur industry is a wave in the ocean and the ranch industry is the tide um, when fur prices if and when fur prices do come back and we get you know when demand recovers and all of a sudden wild fur starts clearing good and we're doing great and we're all happy because we're getting good prices for our fur and it's all selling uh, obviously the the ranch industry will start to expand again how long does that typically take for the ranch production to catch up with prices that's a a, a real million dollar question and i don't think it's going to it's not going to go very fast at all. And the reason I say that is the average age of the mink ranchers in the U U S is close to retirement age. So that's why when there started to be some uncertainty in ranch mink in 2016, 17, a lot of mink ranchers just pelted out then because if you're, if you're 62 years old, let's say, or 60, 50, between 55 and older, if you're 55 or older and you've just come off some crazy profitable years, you've got a big nest egg, nobody in your family wants the business, and there's a lot of uncertainty in the market, what's the best option? Or retire. Call it good. <laughs> I got a big nest egg. I'm out. Once that person is out at 55, if things start to come back up when they're 62, they're not going to get back into it. They're retired now. 
Yeah. They're not going to start back up and take the risk over again. Uh, at least a smart business person is not going to do that. They're just going to say, I'm good. I'm out. <laughs> I'm just stay up. And so that's where a lot of, of the average age of it, of the, and the, there's no statistics on this. I'm just basing this off of people I know and, 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 you know, talking with people at the auction houses. Um, this is something that, that has a great impact. So in order for the ranch for as it comes back out, which it will, if, 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 uh, in comparison, so if let's say ranch fox or mink start up, it takes two years to really up the production because it, you know you can only breed a mink or a fox one time a year. On the wild fur side, in September, if the market starts to climb, a trapper can go out and catch more fur and produce it immediately that next season. Mm-hmm. So it's easier to put the stuff right out there on the market as it increases. Whereas on the ranch fur side, if it starts to increase, it's going to take two years to ramp up production again, given everything that's just normal. But then when you factor in the idea of people who have gotten out their age and will they get back in? No. So we're only then looking at, at the farms, the ranchers that stayed in, you know, do they have the infrastructure to ramp up production as the market recovers because now it takes you, you know, it's going to take just the breeding cycle when you're breeding an animal once a year, it's going to take two years to get the skins to market. If you have to then expand infrastructure by building more cages and more buildings, that takes time too. So are the ranchers going to be willing to, to, you know, add infrastructure and then add animals and increase feed costs after what they've just been through the past few years. Yeah. And if they're 60 years old, probably not. <laughs> well, and the, the other thing is uh, increasing capacity usually takes a certain amount of debt. And a lot of them, yeah. they, they may not want to go into debt at that age, uh, as well as uh, who knows with the economy that, you know, banks may not be lending as much money or interest rates may do what they did in the seventies. If, if, uh, if the fed keeps printing money. Exactly. Yeah. And we've had, you know, not, not to be political at all, but just state the facts. We've had three presidents in a row now roll out the money truck and print a bunch of it off. Interest rates are actually surprisingly low. (laughs) Yeah. But at some point that's got to change. And so, yeah, I mean, do just because, Hey, mink prices, instead of being 35 bucks, they're 75 bucks. Hey, I want to expand. I got to borrow money at 17%. No, I didn't do that. I'll just stay where I am. That could happen. We don't know how fast. I mean, we, nobody ever could have predicted. I mean, hindsight's always 2020. We can't predict what's going to happen, but but you know that is a, a situation that I could see being very realistic, and and that's something that you know, especially in this country, it's different in Europe. It's a little different in Canada, but it's a lot different in Europe, where their whole governmental, uh, their, their governments are different, and also the way some of the auction houses operate there, as far as them getting funding to expand 
it may be a little more conducive if ranch mink prices came back. Uh, you know, a Finnish mink rancher may be able to ramp up production quicker than a U.S. rancher just because of the economic situation in Finland and interest rates and the way the funding is there versus here. It could be, you know, it could be that that it's easier for them than here or vice versa because we don't know what it's going to look like when we get there. But I am the optimist in me does believe we're going to get there where we see, you know, the fur markets are going to recover. They're not going to stay essentially at zero forever. And they're not at zero now. Um, you know, Saga did move some ranch mink, but it was limited. So I kind of feel like, like that is an encouraging sign uh, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Just, just, uh, patience, I guess. Um, and, and, um, brought maybe more broad scale, uh, thinking and, and being able to adapt more. Do you have any, any other, uh, parting advice for trappers, uh, as we navigate these really uncertain times in the fur market? Oh, I guess just hang in there. You know, I, 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 when this all first started, I sent out an email newsletter and I kind of said, you know, it's my, my hope that, you know, maybe this all brings people together. And I, I still, here we are six weeks later, I still hang on to that hope, but I think it's kind of, kind of me not being real either. It seems like there's a lot of different opinions, a lot of frustration, um, a, a lot of, of who knows what to believe. And I get all that. And, and I, I think ultimately, you know, this will pass, um, you know, try to accept other people. Um, don't make a it political. It's, it shouldn't be a political thing that, you know, COVID-19 is, is, is something that it, it, it's, it's happened regardless of your perspective on it. It has affected the economy. It's affected everybody's economy in the world. And, at a certain point, we're going to look back and we'll have a clearer vision of what it, what this is. But now I don't think is the time to try to paint that picture. It's going to take some time to get to the other side before we can look back and really understand what we're doing or, or what we should have been doing, what we could have been doing, or even what this is looking like. You know, so that's, I think, my, my biggest advice is be patient. Go ahead and plan to trap this fall because... Even if you're in a state that requires social distancing, hey, us trappers have been social distancing for hundreds of years. <laughs> yeah, since about the 1600s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, hey, we're good there. We're covered on the social distancing. It's going to be cold out anyhow, so if you have to wear a mask, hey, wear a scarf. You know, a lot of us do anyhow. <laughs> so, you know, from that perspective, I, I think, you know, there's going to be a fur market next year. Is it going to be great? Probably not. But, hey, you know what? If you want to be a speculator, trap hard, buy a freezer. You can store fur, uh, and and things things are going to be good again. I mean, it's not the end of the world. I I, I know I'm certain of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's pretty good advice. Uh, thanks, Kyle. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I always insight. enjoy talking. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, I guess we'll uh, we'll we'll go back to to watching Wall Street and hope we make a dollar there, or if we lose another dollar, <laughs> something's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it changes day to day. All right, well, thanks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep, thanks, Jeremiah. 
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kyle. Great to catch up with him and learn more about the fur market. A lot of uncertainty, but uh, moving forward, all the best we can do as trappers is just uh, g- gather as much information as we can and uh, act accordingly. So now it's time to announce the winner of the giveaway from Cots Brothers Lures, the uh, book and DVD, the Flat Set Fix DVD and the Black Book of Coyote Trapping that Kellen is giving away. Uh, I just drew a name out of a hat, and the winner is John S. from Minnesota. So congratulations, John. I have sent you an email to get me your mailing address, and we're going to send that uh, book and DVD right off to you. Um, Thanks, guys, for participating in that. Now it's time for our Cots Brothers Lures Deal of the Week. And uh, this is uh, a deal on the TS-85 Beaver Trap. Now, a couple of things. First, if you're not a customer of Cots Brothers Lures, get on there, kotzbros.com, that's K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S.com. And they have a special, you know, in addition to having just great products, great prices and everything, uh, excellent service, they have a bonus point program. So it's kind of like, you know, that Cabela's point program where you earn points for every dollar that you spend. Well, essentially, uh, for every, like, um, $100 you spend, you earn $5 worth of points. It's like 5% off of of every purchase, essentially. It's a really cool deal, and if you order a lot of trapping supplies, you are going to realize a great deal of savings with this. Now, um, for this week, until the 20th of May, you're going to have a special offer that uh, you can use to purchase TS-85 traps for double the bonus points. So instead of five points uh, for every $100 uh, or or the equivalent percentage, you're going to get 10. You're going to get double the points on your purchase of TS-85. Now the TS-85 is a revolutionary beaver trap, the 8.5-inch jaw spread, massive trap, just become really popular, invented by Tim Swatsky. Um, out of Minnesota, uh, a really good professional trapper who has designed a, a lot of things in the trapping industry. Uh, I love the TS-85s. I, I know a lot of longline trappers that love those traps. Um, they are very effective. Um, you're going to notice um, a lot of cases where you, you'd have misses with smaller traps or you'd have beaver not you know not step in your trap pattern. You're going to catch extra fur with these traps. So order... Uh, Get on Cotsbros.com. Um, you are going to sign in when you place an order or, or create an account. It's very easy to do if you don't already have an account. If you do have an account, just log in to your account and place your order for TS85s. And you're going to type this code, TS85 times 2. That's TS85 times 2. And type in that promo code at checkout, and you're going to have double the points toward your TS85 purchase uh, between now and May 20th. So please go ahead and take advantage of that. Uh, there's never been a better time to order trapping supplies. Um, even, even though we're in the off season, it's time to get ready and prepare for the next season. And you're not going to find a deal like this uh, coming into the fall. So thanks with that, guys. Take care, and I will catch you on the next episode.